Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and on this episode, I'm joined by a panel of three experts to talk competition policy and legislative reform. Vas Bednar, Robin Shaban, and Denise Hearn have all been witnesses recently at our industry committee, and they make a compelling case that competition policy, including law reform, should be a central priority for our government. Vas Bednar is the executive director of the Master of Public Policy program at Ryerson. She currently writes a newsletter about Canadian startups and public policy called Regs to Riches, and she was recently recognized as an outstanding alum with a McMaster Arch Award. Robin Shaban has co-authored reports with Vass, and they are the co-founder and senior economist at Vivek Research, an economic consulting firm. Robin was a winner of the Globe and Mail's 2021 Changemakers Award, and they are a PhD candidate at Carleton with a focus on competition policy. Denise Hearn is a senior fellow at the American Economic Liberties Project and co-lead of the Access to Markets Initiative. She is an author, advisor, a recognized leader in new economic thinking, and a co-author of The Myth of Capitalism, Monopolies, and the Death of Competition, named one of the Financial Times' best books of 2018. Now, our industry committee has been seized with competitiveness for some time now, including in the last parliament, including in this one, and including with a focus on Competition Act reform. And the government, thankfully, is increasingly seized with these issues too. The recent Budget Implementation Act, for example, incorporated some smaller Competition Act changes, and Minister Champagne has committed to a broader legislative reform with consultation to come to inform that more comprehensive legislation. Of course, as you'll hear, legislative reform is important but looking to increase our competitiveness with a broader lens across public policy is also critical. Robin, Vass, Denise, thanks so much for joining me. I want to start with a premise that I think holds true, which is our country, Canada, is a country of oligopolies. We are far too concentrated in far too many industries, and I guess the problem that we need to tackle is how we go about addressing that. And I came to this issue in a little bit of a silly way where I woke up on my birthday one day really frustrated because I read the news that the grocery store oligopoly was slashing wages in the middle of a pandemic. I was really mad about it. So I tap out a motion on my phone in 30 minutes and I send it off and then we call the executives in. And then I learned about wage fixing and the sorry state of our competition law. But you knew about these problems long before I did. So let's start with where we are at in this country on competition law reform and where we should be, but let's start with where we're at. The federal government announced that there's going to be a review of the Competition Act, which is the core competition legislation in our country. It's kind of like uh, the Sherman and the Clayton Act in the U.S. It's our our bread and butter when it comes to competition law and policy in Canada. So the government has committed to doing a review of the legislation and has already taken some uh, preliminary steps to reforming the law. So in the latest Budget Implementation Act, the government put forward some changes to the Competition Act. Some of the big ones included uh, a new provision that actually now makes it a criminal offense for businesses to collude to fix wages. So this comes back to your point about being angry, waking up about you know, wage fixing in grocery stores, right? So the government has taken steps to address that. There's also been changes that broaden the scope of what are called the abuse of dominance provisions. So these are aspects of the law that let the Competition Bureau tackle behaviors that businesses do today that can undermine competition both today and in the future, as well as some other changes that 
may make it easier for businesses to launch their own competition law lawsuits within the competition tribunal, which is the special quasi-court that hears competition cases. So there's already steps that are being taken, but what we need to be doing now is thinking about how we're going to engage more diverse voices in this conversation and fold them into the process so that everyone has a fair shot at expressing their needs from competition law. I think another place that we're at to, to build on, on Robin, yes, there's these exciting concrete initial steps. I mean, so many people are in a discovery phase when it comes to our country's comfort with oligopolies. Where are they? How did they come about? And kind of having a bit of a reckoning associated with that, right? What is that legislative infrastructure that's facilitated this? And, you know, we're kind of of the mind, I hope it's okay if, I, if I'm speaking for us, Canadians are talking about competition policy almost all the time. Uh, but we just never use those two words, right? We hear all these stories, all these vignettes about breaking into a market, prices going up, you know, choices being reduced. And, and we can go through some, th- some of those examples too. But the storytelling really brings to life how comprehensive our competition failures are. The lack of research, you know, we need a more robust research agenda on competition in Canada. And we have a lot to learn. And we can build from peer jurisdictions like the US that have done pioneering work that we look at with admiration and and curiosity here in Canada. And that stimulates us, that pushes us to kind of think more and, and do a little bit better. I think the only thing I would add is just that, you know, sometimes when people think about competition policy, it can seem very wonkish and sort of out of touch. And I think, you know, the more that you go down the rabbit hole, you realize that it really touches all aspects of of our lives, whether you're a worker, a consumer, you know, an independent business. It's also really important for Canada's uh, economic prospects in the future. You know, we continue to have stagnating growth. We have below OECD average levels of um, startup rates. And, you know, for many years, people have said that one of the primary causes of this is uh, an above average use of antitrust exemptions for incumbent players and a refusal to really take seriously the the role of regulators in regulating market uh, competition such that, you know, you can have new entrants um, forming. And so I think that this is such an, a critical area for Canada going forward. And um, it's exciting to see that now there's so much of a buzz and there's more energy around this conversation and they're increasingly, you know, more and more voices are wanting to participate. Um, and I think just the last thing that I'll say is, you know, we're all familiar with the kind of major oligopolies like the banks and the telecoms and you know, it's very sort of very apropos right now with Roger Shaw, but there's lots of things that happen that are less noticeable that kind of happen under the radar, whether that's the consolidation of funeral homes, as an example in Canada, or, you know, insurance businesses and the role of private equity in rolling up, you know, smaller industries, disaggregated industries, such that they can then gain pricing power in local markets. And so I think there's lots to discuss here. And we're excited that you're having this conversation because it's critical. Well, I want to get into what the consultation for the, what the larger piece of competition reform should look like, because I know the UK has gone down this road recently and really updated their rules. Before we even get there, because you mentioned Roger Shaw, and because when we talk about how Canadians see competition policy, it's actually in telecommunications that this comes up constantly in my inbox, that we're frustrated at high prices. And there's a connection, at least in that sector, as between high prices and consolidation. And here we have a moment where not only have multiple governments across party lines tried to be in the business of 
encouraging new entrants. And we now have the competition commissioner that is thankfully doing his job in a really serious way. I think it seems obvious where the government should land to me. Do you have a view as to how that process should unfold from here on out? I'll take a, a first cut at that one too. From the government's perspective, Roger Shaw has already sailed. It's officially in the courts, so to speak. It's at the tribunal and it's really up to the commissioner and the competition tribunal to to navigate how this is all going to be resolved. I think that what's interesting about Roger Shaw compared to other mergers that have been litigated in the past at the competition tribunal is that the Bureau has more insight and uh, information about the telecom sector at its disposal than it ever did before. We've actually been around this merry-go-round before. A few years back when Bell purchased MTS, we had a very similar situation where the transaction was expected to impact uh, mobile services, the price for mobile services. And so the Bureau struck a deal with those parties. And part of that was a divestiture of mobile spectrum to a third party. And the intention of that divestiture was to create a new competitor that would basically replace MTS. And I think what we've all learned from that deal and time is that that divestiture didn't work. And so part of why we're seeing this case at the tribunal today is because the Bureau is standing its ground and saying, no, we're not accepting a deal like that in order to let you move forward. We have higher standards for how this deal needs to be resolved if it's going to move forward. And Roger Shaw, you're not meeting that. And so we're going to fight this at the competition tribunal. So it's an exciting time. And I think highlights you know, the potential of competition law in our country, but also some of the deficits, in particular deficits in our law related to market studies, which is something that Vass and I have talked a lot about in the past and, and we can touch on later in our conversation too. I'll jump in and sort of just do two things. One is to to plug a, a report that's a great primer. It's called The State of Competition in Canada that Robin and I wrote for McGill last year. So for any listener that's looking, just wants to get oriented, what is this? How does it currently work? What's the history and, and what are some you know opportunities to, to improve that? Uh, it's great. Uh, it doesn't touch on, on Roger Shaw, but uh, another aspect that I think comes through is how we underestimated the role of the public in two ways. One, for making, you know, the political kind of movement around this merger. And two, you know, the expectation that people are are centered in our competition law. We have a general armchair expectation that we have a consumer-centric competition act. And we actually kind of don't. And Robin can go into this in further detail when it comes to the purpose statement of the act itself. But I think what we're seeing from this case, and while it's exciting that it's going forward, is that it still demonstrates a disconnect between the contemporary public's expectation of what this legislation does for them and for each other, for us, and how it actually works. So just to round out on the role of the public, Yes, this merger is going forward and it captured the public's imagination, but there was a recent merger that last year the competition tribunal agreed with Commissioner Boswell that if this merger went forward, it would cause irreparable harm. That Those are the exact words to competition. I call it the garbage merger. It's secure intervita. It, it was no Roger Shaw, but in other ways has the very same parallels. Didn't make front page uh, news. 
it went forward. It went forward because our law allowed it to privilege efficiency over everything else. And that is literally the story of Canadian competition law. We had a, an expert provide the same kind of insight recently, and I hadn't read the case law in quite the same way. But it's surprising to me that the highest court in our country, in its interpretation of the efficiencies defense, basically pits quantitative evidence as against quantitative evidence. And what that means, ultimately, to my understanding, is you've got a company that has the quantitative evidence in hand around efficiencies, but the, you've got a competition commissioner that doesn't have quantitative evidence about potential negative impacts. And that is ultimately, in some cases, speculative, although obvious in other cases, and it is more qualitative in nature. And our case law doesn't allow the qualitative evidence to overcome the quantitative as easily as it should. And I was struck that other countries don't operate in the same space. They might have efficiencies like defenses, but certainly not the way we have interpreted ours. And that is a major disservice to pushing back against continued consolidation that we see. You've mentioned the government sector attempted consolidation in telecommunications sector. And when we already have such consolidation, surely we want strong competition laws to avoid further consolidation. So the efficiencies defense, you've raised it, Robin, in our committee of asked you've raised it in committee. It obviously is part of the re- more recent report as well that, that you've put forward. And that seems like an obvious place to further reform the act. But at the same time, maybe you could speak to what a broader consultation process ought to look like, because we know that's one thing that ought to be fixed, but there are probably other things along the way that need to be fixed. Denise, do you want to jump in at all before Robin and I like go like lose our minds? (laughs) Sure. I mean, I guess, you know, just from my perspective, zooming out the sort of focus on efficiencies and in the U.S. it's more colloquially known as the consumer welfare standard, which is, you know, a focus on lowering prices and a focus on efficiency was really has been 40 years of sort of intellectual capture, privileging this idea of economic efficiency over above everything else. It's a very econometric way of viewing markets. And You know, I think largely this kind of worldview is being challenged in numerous ways, particularly right now, where you see how the privileging of so-called efficiency, where we had just-in-time delivery, where we had zero slack in the system. Now, when we're getting such, you know, supply chain disruptions, and in the U.S., we have a major baby formula crisis because we've got three companies that control 98% of the production, that this idea of you know privileging efficiency over everything else has really left our systems very fragile and susceptible to disruption and not only that but i think that when you get into the kind of the need to then build these economic cases they're built upon a foundation um, and a lot of economic assumptions that simply don't hold true in the real world and so i think that this it can't be overstated how important of a like sort of paradigmatic foundation this is for competition law, both in Canada and the US, that it really needs to be overturned. And you will constantly hear folks who want to keep the status quo, they will they will center this. And sorry, I'll just add one more thing that, you know, it's interesting because companies will often claim that they will provide, you know, these efficiencies or they'll pass their costs, uh, the cost savings on to consumers. And there's a fantastic academic in the U.S., John Quaka, who looked at uh, thousands of mergers that had gone through and did post-analysis. And in the majority of cases, companies, of course, did not lower prices post-merger. They raised prices because they had increased market power and they had pricing power. And so, you know, these kind of efficiency claims rarely play out in reality on the other side of a merger. And I think that that needs to be kept in mind as well. 
Denise Hearn calling the efficiencies defenses bluff, bringing the receipts with research. I want to turn it to Robin. They know a ton about this, but I, I just want to set them up with, with two elements. One is putting Canada in context. We're the only G7 country that has this defense and uses it. And the commissioner has spoken out about this as well. And second, just the flag that you know, Canada's competition law, it's old, but it's kind of new at the same time, right? The act came in into effect in 1986. So that's so unique. It means the people that put their fingerprints all over it, many of them are, are still around. And they're part of the competition conversation. They're a, a critical and important part of that competition conversation. However, it can also contribute to a bit of a defensiveness, and that's not how we should be talking about the opportunity of legislative reform. It should not be heard, though I can imagine it, it, you know, I can imagine how it could be heard as criticism if you're, you're part of that group or, or people. But I want to just put that in context because what other jurisdiction is looking at revamping a law that again is old, but new at the same time and can still connect with a lot of the intellectual thinkers that helped bring this law to fruition. And I think we can spin that as an opportunity for Canada too to kind of bring a new generation together to improve this act and other pieces of legislation that also need to be improved to improve competition in Canada. That took longer than I, I thought it would. So sorry, Robin, over to you. Yeah, thanks. And that was a really beautiful way to to put that idea of, yeah, the community, like reflecting the community of people that we have today who can effectively participate in a review. And something that that I've been banging the drum on over the last couple months is this idea of expanding the community of people that we reach out to when we're talking about competition policy and competition policy reform. Like Vass said, like we need the people who were the original authors of the Competition Act at the table, right? Like we're not saying that these people shouldn't participate or that their value, their, their contributions are not valuable. But what we are saying is that we need those voices and more. And we also need a space where we can all come together and recognize that we have different views, different interests, and that the goal of this consultation is to balance those interests and find ways to reconcile them so that we have a competition law that is cohesive and not in conflict with itself internally. And for me, uh, part of what needs to happen in order for that environment to manifest is the government needs to be uh, designing a consultation process that uh, creates space for voices that are not traditionally part of the scene. And the thing that uh, the government should be keeping in mind is that a lot of these newer voices are not coming in with that same level of technical expertise. And so I, I think that the government needs to be budgeting time and resources in order to support these participants and enable them and empower them to reflect and share their perspectives and integrate those perspectives into the review in a way that actually translates into hard letters in a law. And that could look like, and I'm pulling on a idea that Bass had here of uh, a citizens assembly. So actually developing a, a process where citizens, everyday people come together in a room and over the course of perhaps several days, 
get educated on competition policy and come to uh, develop sophisticated perspectives on this that could then feed into a review. I could see a similar process happening perhaps across organizations, different advocacy organizations or you know other civil society organizations could come together and become uh, come up to speed on the technicalities of the law and then be better positioned to effectively participate in conversations. I was just going to chime in and add that, you know, we've seen this live in the U.S. right now, and it's really inspiring. Uh, The FTC and the DOJ are reviewing their merger guidelines for the first time in, you know, over a decade. And I think the last time they did this process, 28 people wrote in comments, and they were mostly economists and antitrust lawyers. And, uh, you know, my organization, the American Economic Liberties Project and others put out a wide public call for, for people to write in across all industries and say, hey, how have mergers affected you? You know, both negatively and positively. And they have nearly 6,000 comments. We've completely deluged uh, the, you know, the, the agencies. And they've also been setting up public listening forums. And so, and they've set, they've done them by industry. So we, we just heard yesterday from folks in technology, we've had a music and entertainment one. And it's really powerful to hear the stories of people and how, you know, mergers and lack of competition or coercive contract terms or whatever the case may be, really affect affect people's ability to make a living, to build a business, you know, and to feel like they have agency and choice in markets. And so I think that Canada could do something similar, and it would be an incredibly powerful tool to surface a lot of the issues that tend to remain in the shadows in these types of processes where you're not hearing directly from stakeholders. Well, it's, re- it's really interesting thinking about the consultation process, because I've even struggled with my own effort to educate myself. When it comes to competition lawyers in Canada, there's a reticence to be public in their desire for reform because of often who they represent. And so I've had confidential conversations that have allowed me to be educated in a more serious way that I wouldn't have been able to have in a public way. They would not have joined me for the podcast, for example. I like the idea of a citizens assembly. And I also think it's really important uh, to your point, Denise, just about emphasizing how this matters to people in a, in, in a concrete way, because Roger Shaw is an example. People understand how it matters to them. But I don't think many Canadians understand that the cinema space in Canada is effectively a monopoly and that has ongoing impacts for independent cinemas, but also independent operators in that space. And so there are so many knock on consequences, depending upon the sector and how, and how they are realized in different ways. In a data driven markets report that Vass and Robin, you were co-authors of, there were a, a, a litany of examples, copycatting where a company a large player says, oh, well, this product is working in our marketplace. We're going to do the very same thing and possibly undercut that supplier. You've got gatekeeping. And I want to get into what that means exactly, because we hear that a little bit in conservative circles right now. Self-preferency, personalized pricing. There are so many different elements to address. And, and I think people can, can see it in their own lives where they see, oh, yeah, that, that does happen at my grocery store. And that does happen. And and I guess the, the real question in some ways as it relates to efficiencies, because I do think efficiencies defense should be modernized and, and should be adjusted in a serious way. But how do you respond to the individual who says, well, I do only care about low prices. So if, the, if the merger is going to lower prices for me, and I think Denise, you had a probably good answer was to say, historically, that's not the case. We had a professor at our committee earlier this week 
that basically said, you know, consolidation hurts innovation. It ultimately does mean rising prices, even though you might not see it right away. And so even though you might in this individual instance say there's maybe an efficiencies case, if you take the long view, it's, it's almost always that Canadian consumers will be worse off. Is, is that how I have to respond? Well, I would just say quickly that, you know, I think this is one of the problems is that people think that the average person doesn't understand these issues. The average person understands these issues incredibly well. And particularly when you speak to independent business owners who are getting squeezed on all sides, they can tell you exactly what's happening in their industry. And it's up to us to rest this whole conversation outside of the hands of technocrats, essentially, and economists who have intentionally taken this over for the purposes of obscuring how this affects people in markets. And so I think that's why these public consultation product uh, processes are so important. And I would say that, yeah, I think one of the challenges is that you're right, that oftentimes the effects of concentrated markets don't show up for a while. They tend to tend to lag. And also there's, there's, you know, there's a bit of a fallacy of composition going on where something that might be good for me and my business, as an example, I'm a startup entrepreneur, I want to get acquired, that's my exit strategy. Every single person wants to do that. But when we do that in aggregate, and when we consolidate markets and, and capital flows in aggregate, it has a, a drag on growth, it has a drag on innovation. And so um, what might be good for any one individual person or any one individual business, when you look at the macroeconomic effects, it's not the same. This is happening live with crypto. It's like, if I think crypto is going down, I'm going to go and try to take my money out as fast as possible. And when everyone does that, you precipitate the outcome you don't want. And this, this I think, is one of the challenges with competition policy is helping people see those aggregate effects. But there also are very real and tangible effects that do you know, that I think people do understand that we need to keep emphasizing as well. One of the reasons you saw that laundry list in the report that uh, Robin and I did with Anna Corey is one, we wanted to take a case study approach and look at not just business behaviors, but data-driven behaviors, right? Because how the how firms tend to compete has changed since 1986. Spoiler alert, right? We have this data-driven economy, digital economy, however you want to frame it. People also understand that there's an inherent kind of newness to how firms compete. And we wanted to test, is that, you know, is that reflected in the act? Is the act as flexible as it needs to be? Because that's another way to sort of test what kind of reform we need. And we wanted to put it in the context of those business behaviors, because one, it's really hard to bring a case forward in Canadian competition law. So we actually couldn't look at the case law, which is, you know, predominantly how we would extract lessons. And two, we could abstract cases that exist in other jurisdictions. So they're not total abstractions from us. We're not making up case studies. We are pointing to actual antitrust cases that have either been heard or are in the process of being heard in other jurisdictions to say, how would or could we contemplate this here in Canada? And I think what we were able to put forward as another kind of productive vehicle or, or policy artifact to to pluck from and say, okay, not only do we have opportunities to improve the Competition Act, and, and Robin, I'll, I'll turn it to you in a second, so you can you know riff off riff off of all that, but also the issues raised by these data driven behaviors are not only competition issues, right? A lot of them are consumer protection issues of a lack of transparency, something not being labeled. You mentioned self-preferencing. Well, how do you opt out of an algorithmic system? Can I choose to have 
the cookies I'm shopping for online displayed alphabetically or by price or by brand? Or does it have to be, you know, the algorithmic the algorithm that's there? When self-preferencing occurs, how do how do you even know it's happened? So I think that's that secondary opportunity that's in the paper. And it's a lot of reading uh, and a lot of heavy reading, but uh, we're we're very grateful uh, for anyone that clicks on it or finds something that that speaks to them and kind of helps them understand and appreciate uh, how Canadian competition law can be improved. Yeah, I uh, I want to circle back to uh, the question, Nate, of, all right, what do I say to these conservatives or whoever that, like, listen, all I care about is price. Like, I don't care about concentration in itself. Um, my answer to that would be that that price, affordable, fair prices are an outcome of healthy, dynamic, competitive markets. So there's a lot of different ways we can get fair pricing. We could have price regulations, but actually it turns out if we have fair, dynamic, competitive markets, we don't need government intervention to come in and dictate fair prices. And what is important about healthy and dynamic competitive markets is that it has benefits beyond just fair prices. Um, Something I've been exploring lately is the intersection of uh, competition law and labor policy. And this is something that Bass and I touch on too on this uh, report that Bass was just talking about. In that, I've been thinking about this intersection of competition in labor markets and the billions of dollars that our government puts into transfer programs and other labor market supports to help people better engage in labor markets and find their own autonomy and make their own way in life, right? We have an entire department, Employment Social Development Canada, who has a mandate for this. And we spend, like I said, billions of dollars on just tax and transfer programs to effectively subsidize people's wages so that they can not only afford to live in Canada, but also you know, make enough and and engage in labor markets in a way that is sustainable. So competition in labor markets and consumer markets as well is about creating the conditions for everyone to be able to participate in society and find their own autonomy in order to make their own success. And when we have markets that are Uh, excessively dominated by a single or a small number of firms and are not competitive, not accessible, we create situations where we have segments of the population that can't seem to make enough money to get by, right? Or find a job where they feel like they can contribute and they are um, providing something meaningful to society, So it's about creating an economy where people can be autonomous and we're not relying on, I think, a lot of policy interventions that conservative types would be less in favor of. Yeah, I was just going to add to that. You know, there's there's such a plethora now of data to see the effects of concentrated markets, uh, both in Canada and globally. And so particularly for workers, you know, for many uh, decades, the labor share was about two thirds of GDP. So that's the amount of, you know, profits going to workers. And in 1980, that labor share began declining from about 66% of GDP to like 58 to 59% today, which is a decline of 7%. That doesn't sound 
like very much, but when you look at it, that's overall about $6 trillion less going to workers globally every year as a result. I mean, we would say, you know, one of the primary factors is concentrated markets, obviously World Trade Organization, trade liberalization, digital economies have had an effect on that too, but that's massive. And then also when you look at, um, you know, we talked about pricing power earlier, markups and higher consumer prices. In 1980, average markups, um, this is US data, were about 20% above marginal cost. So the, the amount that a company would charge the consumer, you know, over and above its production costs. And today that is 60%. And so, you know, when we talk about these, you were saying, you know, the lag effects of all of this, these are real... The, you know, these are really big uh, macroeconomic effects that are in part a reason why we're seeing, you know, the, the high degrees of inequality that we're seeing today. And not, not only that, but um, there's a lot of evidence that companies and concentrated interest uh, industries invest much less back into the business. And so that's where you see falling R&D, falling CapEx spending and things like that. And, you know, the top 10 most concentrated industries tend to invest 20% lower than than their peers in like less concentrated industries. So I think there's so many effects of this that are sometimes hard to see and hard to recognize until you get to the position where, you know, we are now in markets where things are very, you know, unequal. There's Canada like careened out of last year on a major M&A boom, and it's not slowing down anytime soon. And so these, these effects are only, you know, in some cases getting worse. And we need to ask ourselves, what kind of economy are we trying to create with our competition policy? And as Vass said, you know, with other policies as well. You rightly emphasize some of the broader economic implications. And then as it relates to Robin, you mentioned the impact on labor. There's an impact, obviously, on end consumer, and there's an impact on suppliers, too. We see grocery stores squeezing suppliers, and that's been a political issue more recently, but we see it across the board. And specifically, that came up in testimony at the industry committee when you discussed gatekeepers. And I mean, Amazon would be maybe the, the best example today of a gatekeeper that is squeezing suppliers on its platform. The challenge that I am I struggle with, because I understand how to address the efficiencies defense as a it's it's arcane it needs to be updated i get it i understood quite quickly the need to update our wage fixing laws there's a path to broader competition reform but when it comes to amazon's practices say and i read the the toll report that says break up amazon in some ways is one of the recommendations and i think how is a canadian competition authority going to have that conversation whatsoever so when we look at gatekeepers and i know amazon's not the only one but in a digital environment where Canada is a small player internationally, all things considered, how do we constructively play a role in addressing these gatekeepers? I love the question. How can we constructively address the role? Because I think we're going to start seeing more kind of convergence around roles. We're going, you know, for for digital markets, maybe more more of a global regime because they're borderless. And uh, it would be odd. And we're going to have this inter intermediary stage where some jurisdictions are treating these, again, data-driven behaviors in a very particular way, while others are silent, which is all the more reason for Canada's opportunity to have a broader public dialogue around why and how we care about gatekeeping and how that power is imposed. And one of the things we we point to and don't necessarily fully endorse in in that paper you've generously mentioned is 
you know, some jurisdictions have have layered in platform specific legislation, um, while others have made and, and Canada could make some specific amendments to the act. Again, there's a conversation to be had about the behavior in and of itself of gatekeeping. And then is it always an abuse of dominance? Or should there be a particular market share that the company has? Because one of the key themes that comes out in that paper when it comes to the behaviors, and I'm sorry to be so boring and keep talking about the behaviors themselves, but in a kind of regulatory vacuum or a gray zone, however you want to phrase it, they're just becoming more ubiquitous, right? The largest players set new norms for competition. And as D- Denise has pointed out in, in her writing, right, private actors are are acting as effectively acting as, as regulators in these markets because in the absence of rules. When that behavior becomes ubiquitous, it has major implications for competition as well, right? So it's not just about the largest company abusing their dominance and gatekeeping. It's also the reality that any platform of any size can do this. Any search software can potentially self-preference their own products if it's a marketplace that they own and operate in, which is why you hear us referencing familiar Canadian places like Canadian Tire, Marks, formerly Marks Work Warehouse, as I learned, The Bay, Loblaw. These firms also self-preference their own products over others. It has implications for third-party independent sellers. It doesn't just have to be an Amazon thing. And it you know, occasionally we are improperly painted as like anti, you know, big tech, or if we just do something just for big tech, it'll be suitable. But actually, it probably wouldn't because the it doesn't address the ubiquity of these new behaviors. It only kind of others uh, firms that, you know, Denise is, is joining us from the US, but here in Canada, very easy for us to other these large technology firms and not scrutinize Shopify in a, in a in a competitive context. Canada hasn't gone there yet. We might one day. There might be no need to. I wanted to take a second and and kind of break this down into categories. So, if we were to try and tackle something like the excessive fees that Amazon charges to users of its platform, right? Retailers that that use Amazon to sell products, or I mean, any other behavior that we see as a result of Amazon's dominant position. Like Vass said, one of the options is to have platform-specific legislation. And that's an approach that the European Union has taken in its uh, Digital Markets Act. So within that legislation, they define gatekeepers. So if people are looking for a definition of gatekeepers, they can look at the Digital Markets Act. And within that legislation, they specify certain behaviors that are illegal and regulate them accordingly. Another approach could be to expand competition law. This business model of a platform is becoming more prevalent. Integrating that into competition law could be favorable because it allows us to be more broad in how we apply the law. The trick is how exactly do we modify the law so that we're tackling these behaviors? And that would require us to expand our notion of what constitutes an abuse of dominance. Today, the idea of abuse of dominance is relatively narrow, but if we were to expand our idea of abuse of dominance to capture more behaviors that are seen as just exploitative, that don't necessarily undercut or undermine competitors or specifically undermine the competitive process of the market, but are just exploitative in and of themselves, we may be able to tackle some of these behaviors like excessive fees charged by Amazon. 
Whether we're going to see Canada break up Amazon, I think that's very unlikely. I mean, that's just difficult to do in itself under competition law. It's such an extreme remedy. You'd need to to argue pretty hard for that. And, and I don't know if it's possible, but I do think that there are some interventions that are available to us in both the platform-specific regulation universe and also within the sphere of competition law. And just really quickly, the last point I wanted to make, and this is something Vass has been talking a lot about lately, but taking a more consumer rights approach and looking at interventions that are not traditional competition law, but have to do with labeling, for example, labeling private label products, for example, I think is one sort of intervention that falls outside the traditional competition policy scope, but is an effective tool, I think, for addressing some of the issues specific to platforms. It's interesting, the intersection of consumer protection in your report, you also referenced privacy, because these have come up for me in a different setting when I was on the privacy committee and the competition commissioner, interestingly, it wasn't the privacy commissioner that was initially going after Facebook. It was the competition commissioner because there'd been a violation of the terms of use. It was a consumer protection issue functionally. And these issues all weave together when you're talking about data-driven markets to the point that I think maybe Facebook has changed their view, but they came before us many years ago and I quoted the German competition commissioner to them and the Facebook representative said, oh, no, no, no. Competition and privacy are very different things. At some point, you're not competing on price. You're competing on, on, on privacy when it comes to these free services. And so it's hard to pull all of these threads apart sometimes. And, and it is interesting too, when you think of the need for privacy commissioners as data easily flows across borders to work together collaboratively from an international global perspective, so too with competition commissioners, one would think as we go forward in, in addressing some of these issues. To return to how we address some of these problems, because competition law can go a certain degree of the way to solving these problems. We heard from an expert earlier this week at committee about lowering barriers to entry in other ways, not just specific to antitrust law. There are other ways we address specific problems in specific sectors, potentially. So if we look at Uber and its impact on labor, we might go, well, let's reform our Employment Insurance Act and force them to pay into the EI system and treat them more as employees. And other countries are doing this, California and UK Mm -hmm. as examples. We could look at the grocery store sector and say, actually, there's going to be a code of conduct that the UK has. And when it comes to our online news act right now, we have social media versus newspapers and how we force you know, mandatory arbitration if they can't come to terms. If it's not competition law, do some of these other avenues hold promise? And is it really just sector specific? In this sector, we're going to find this answer. And in that sector, we're going to find this answer. And there are common problems we're trying to solve, but maybe different solutions. Maybe not just sector by sector, but also orders of government, right? Like we've confined uh, caring about competition to one ministry. The Competition Bureau is nested under ISA. That creates an inherent kind of internal tension for the Minister of Innovation. Why not task more ministries and orders of government with caring about the competitive outcomes of their policies, but also finding new kind of pro-competitive interventions? Like in Ontario, we've seen some work around the banning of non-compete clauses. That's good for worker mobility. Also at committee at Indu, we heard about the digital nomad working. That's pro-competitive, you know, that's a pro-competitive policy, arguably for workers, you know, and if I were the government, what would I do? I mean, of course, lots of rich ideas coming forward in Indu and, and through other avenues, but I'd also flip back to the platform 
from just a few months ago, and I'd look at the digital policy task force, and I would look at that potential group, I would strike it, I would, you know, maybe put I would put myself on it, to be honest, and I would task this group with actually taking an integrated, interoperable approach to make sure that all the legislative changes we're on the cusp of bringing forward, speak to each other and have a unifying strategy and theory of harm that is an opportunity for Canada. And what I think we're seeing is that this piecemeal kind of one by one or tweaking things here and there, it's it doesn't feel satisfying. We know that we're not kind of getting at the root of the deficiency of our kind of legislative infrastructure and in in updating it and, and modernizing it. There's also intersections with intellectual property that we're overlooking in Canada, right? Privacy, consumer protection, heritage goals may be in, fundamentally incompatible with the Competition Act. So why not, again, share and set a vision and then help kind of all actors work towards that more effectively and take the the pressure and heat off, again, one ministry. This is about the entire economy and Canada's competitiveness, uh, which means more people should be engaged formally and informally in achieving that goal. Bess, you're speaking my language. I think your comments and Nate, your question, I think it it hits, for me, it, it hits on a really important theme on what the government needs to be doing as part of this review of the act. And that is, well, in the words of uh, Bass and Denise, um, taking a a cross-government approach. The way I see that is by first starting with the understanding that competition law, first and foremost, it's a policy tool for creating the type of markets we want to see in Canada, right? Markets that are accessible, that are fair, our lives are centered around the economy, like society is economy, markets are integral to almost every aspect of our lives. There's no wonder that competition law has multifaceted and far reaching impacts, not only when it comes to creating more productivity and efficiency within our economy, but also in a multitude of other ways. And so as part of this review, the government needs to be taking this cross-sectional approach. And in traditional competition policy spheres, there's a very strong reluctance to do that. There's this idea that competition law is only about promoting economic efficiency, and it should just stick with that. And issues like economic fairness or privacy or the multitude of other things we could throw in there. Those are for other departments to decide. And we're going to work in our silo and mind our own business. But the reality is that that approach, while it resolves potential conflicts within the competition law, it just makes them someone else's problem, right? So other departments are stuck with this situation where we're working with markets that are not conducive to reaching the broader goals of government and society. And so competition law needs to see itself as foundational policy on which other policy objectives are built and supported. We need to be taking that cross-sectional approach, which not only understands the intersections of competition law and broader policy goals outside of traditionally what's seen as competition law, but also looking at competition law's comparative advantages in providing certain types of outcomes. Is competition law really the best instrument for promoting economic efficiency? This claim is made, and it's true that it does promote efficiency, but is it better 
than other types of policy interventions. I've never seen an analysis like that. And if someone has one, I'd love to, to see it. But is it better than, say, investing in small and medium-sized businesses through loan programs delivered by ISED? These are the questions that we need to be asking ourselves as we navigate the bigger picture question of what is competition policy supposed to do for Canadians? And I was just going to add two quick thoughts. One is that, you know, although we want to silo these issues into different political departments, you know, the companies that are benefiting from the integrated effects of all of these, that is their entire business strategy, right, is to integrate and build moats in multiple ways. And so when you look at Facebook, you know, they don't want privacy legislation because that you know, may prevent them from accessing data, which feeds them machine learning, which, feed, you know, they've just recently built the world's largest supercomputer. And now they're vertically integrating the software and the hardware, the data and the compute power to be able to build new moats. And so, you know, what we're calling for, and just to preempt the sort of like inevitable red tape counter argument that will arise when you start talking about this, we're not saying that there necessarily needs to be bigger government or less government. It's just about effective government looking, talking to each other across these multiple areas, which, you know, intellectual property is another one that we haven't brought up. So there's, there's so many areas for which market realities do not divide nicely uh, into, you know, into these categories, they bleed over into each other. And um, what we're saying is that, you know, our legislative regime should be modernized to match market realities instead of these sort of like arcane divisions, which don't play out in the real world. When it comes to advocacy, and if you were to put yourself in my shoes as a member of parliament, I'm not the minister. I've pushed on wage fixing. I've seen some success. We highlighted competition policy in the last parliament, and it now looms larger, I think. We've got a recommendation at committee to ensure the government doesn't allow the Rogers Shaw deal to proceed. And I think there is now some appetite, at least we see from the competition here, to, to really be serious about pushing back against that merger. Going forward, we've got the, the broader consultation piece. If you're in my shoes, where do you think I can be most successful? And if, and if you were in my shoes, what would you be focused on, both in advocacy to the industry minister, but also in publicly highlighting the issues that need to be need to be addressed? Is it a matter of making sure the consultation lands right, or should I be focused on some other reform that we need to see going forward? The idea of the consultation landing right is is really key. And uh, I think that's something that you are, are pretty well positioned to help support with, because again, you know, something I fear, like actually genuinely something that keeps me up at night and causes a little heartburn is uh, the idea that we will do this consultation and we'll have a broader array of voices at the table. But because these voices don't have decades of experience working at Bay Street law firms representing companies to the Competition Bureau, they're not going to have the same power in their voice. And so I think we run the risk of having a consultation where we get these new voices, they aren't really integrated into the process, and government just checks the boxes and said, look, we consulted so broadly, this is so great, right? Like, uh, we can't have a superficial review, we need a review that genuinely engages with and supports these new voices. And part of that is devoting the right amount of time and resources to effectively engage with these people. And we talked about some strategies for, for doing that, but it, it requires a like boots on the ground approach. I think just opening up a consultation, hey, in 30 days, write us a letter and let us know what you think. That's not enough. 
We need like face-to-face engagement. We need like participation. Bringing forward the issues and into formal parliamentary structures as you've been doing in ways big and small, I think really helps kind of haul the conversation forward because, you know, you, you, you stimulate more discussion, people put forward briefs, right? This is free policy consulting and advice to kind of collect ideas in an open and transparent way. But to those underrepresented voices, I think we need to listen more effectively to small and medium-sized enterprises. I know at Indu, you heard from CFIB about red tape broadly, and Denise and I sort of put forward that the red tape, some of the red tape they might be talking about is actually private regulation of digital markets that could is hurting small businesses from, from our perspective, our reading, and, and Denise's work. And second, unfortunately, we have weak consumer protection authorities, not formally in government, but associations in Canada. So that, you know, not only do we have you know, we're a little bit challenged on political championship. I, I, I'm not including you there. Uh, not only do we have a, a, a competition commissioner that's who's, you know, a little bit, his voice is a little bit constrained because of how we structured. We have consumer voices that are weakened in aggregate because we don't necessarily have these associations telling those competition stories on our behalf. Surfacing more of those, amplifying them, I think actually helps go a long way alongside a more kind of robust and rigorous consultation. And the last thing I'll say to round out, you know, we learned quickly that pointing out that Canada was falling behind didn't unlock some kind of secret policy cheat code that then got, you know, catapulted <laughs> competition to the top of the agenda. But we want to be optimistic here. We're not just kind of tisk tisking. Oh, we, we got to catch up. We fell behind. Yeah, we fell a bit behind, but we have an opportunity now. We have an opportunity to be more integrated. We have an opportunity to use all the tools that we have to achieve the economy that we want and outline a vision. And we have an opportunity to show other stakeholders and other actors around the world that Canada not only cares about competition, but is really thoughtful and careful about how we engage all kinds of voices, even big technology firms, but not just the usual suspects uh, in getting there. Denise Hearn, round us out. Take us home. I just want to say thank you so much for doing what you're doing because, you know, I think even things like this podcast are super important. But I was going to say one small addition is in the U.S., what we've seen is these issues can create some very strange bedfellows, but in a good way, in the sense of these are non often nonpartisan issues. They're presented as partisan. But when you really take an issues-based approach to talking to entrepreneurs, talking to workers, talking to consumers, it's clear that these are cross-party. And so the more that you know, you can be developing coalitions for bringing these issues forward with, you know, folks across the aisle from you. Um, I think that that can be a really effective strategy and you can, you know, and it doesn't have to be necessarily, you know, the big bold home runs, you know, reforming the Competition Act. It may be something sector specific or it may be worker specific or something, but there are ways in which, you know, you can find some common ground, particularly on these issues. And so um, that would be my one encouragement. Well, I appreciate your advocacy research time. I, I'm glad that you're able to join me. And I, I also appreciate this idea, not only of making sure that the consultation is pursued, not to gather dust on a shelf, but to be seen through in a serious way, such that we don't only have the initial reform, but we have broader wholesale reform. And Denise, I also, I think you're right around building consensus because we saw even with our Rogers Shaw report, it was unanimous. We saw with our wage fixing report, it was unanimous. And there is opportunity to work across party lines in the interest of consumers. 
there is a populism that can be beneficial to it. But I think at the end of the day, we all want to represent our constituents and, and their best interests. And ultimately, that means representing small and medium-sized businesses. It means representing the workers for those businesses. And it means representing the consumers who, who shop at those businesses. And being on the same page to ensure strong competition means that we represent those constituents in full and in a fulsome way. So I think you're right about finding common ground. And the more we find common ground, the more we then see our institutions start acting with, I think, greater strength. If our competition commissioner can get to a place where they're acting as strongly as the EU uh, bodies, then it will in part be because we've lifted them up and we've shown them that there's political support for that kind of thing. So I'll just say thank you for, for everything that you're doing. And I imagine that I will lean on you guys a little bit more going forward as we see through the the consultation. And I'm actually pretty optimistic, I would say, I, because when I started at the industry committee a number of years ago, competition reform wasn't on the agenda at all. Certainly it's not something we had run on in any serious way in, in our platforms. It had never really shown up. And so now it is part of the mandate for the industry minister. And that that's only a good thing. And that's only a positive thing. So, and it's no, no small part because people like you are raising your voices and, and doing the research that you are and contributing to the process. So I appreciate it. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Uncommons. Two things that are worth noting. One, it looks as if there is now a sale pending of Shaw's wireless assets to Quebecor. And that may be sufficient to allow that deal to go ahead. We'll see what the competition commissioner's view is. Certainly, it takes a number of the problems off the table, but but not all. Second, you'll have heard in the conversation that at the industry committee, I focused on addressing wage fixing. That was an important priority for me, especially with what we've seen in the grocery store sector. What we heard at committee recently, and Jennifer Quaid is you of Ottawa professor who I have a great deal of respect for, and she emphasized the importance of reform via the Competition Act, but she also suggested that the, the specific changes to wage fixing were not ideal, and that in fact what we really should be looking at doing is perhaps following the line of thinking in the EU, which is a, a civil remedy, but a more effective civil remedy. So as we think about the consultation that is to come, while we have seen changes via the Budget Implementation Act, where there has been some important feedback in relation to those changes that we couldn't incorporate in amendments to the BIA, it's worth in the course of the consultation not only having this much broader conversation and looking at matters like the efficiencies defense, it's also worth looking at whether we can improve the measures that we've even implemented in the BIA and if we can improve them further. All that's to say, thanks again for joining me. Please leave a positive review if you like what we're doing. And otherwise, until next time.